this episode, Gaia Harrington, a contributor to Earth for All, discusses the methods and findings of her empirical data comparison of the scenarios predicted in the limits to growth and shares her conclusions on what the 50-year-old model teaches us today about a way forward. The talk is moderated by Roberto Pasqualino from the University of Cambridge. Uh, let me start this second uh, event of the seminar series on the 50th anniversary of the Limits Grow with Gaia Errington, that you can see she's, she's there. Uh, waiting for us. Gaia, uh, I mean, she, she's not an academic, we can say, and uh, she came into looking at the world problem from the perspective of a large energy company and at the same time, this perspective of a mom, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, Gaia, do you want to say something to the people listening to you? We have kind of a few now in the uh, listening to us. Yeah, I'm going to be talking a lot more, but for now, just uh, thank you very much for uh, hosting Roberto and uh, and your team, all the people who worked on this, and thank you all for being here. Thank you for your time. Looking forward to the Q&A afterwards. Thank you, Gaia. Uh, so what we can say, the first thing I want to do is, of course, to thank a lot of people that supported us build this, this seminar series. So first of all, we have Synergy. Uh, Cambridge Environment Energy Natural Resource Governance uh, Research Institute. Calisynergy is an interdisciplinary research institute looking at energy policy and very much focused on international law as well. So it's very practically focused. So we are academics, but at the same time, we are very practical on trying to find change in the real world, not just you know talking about that. Uh, we thank the Conservation Research Institute as well, part of Cambridge University that uh, was keen to support us in this initiative. And host us here, here as well. Uh, then of course the Club of Rome that, that maybe we, we, we spoke a little bit about that in the previous seminar uh, is a crazy organization from 1970 looking at the change in the, in the real world from the 50 years really now. So that's why it's the 50 years of the Club of Rome and also of the Limits of Growth. It was the first report then. And then we thank the Bennett Institute for Public Policy. Again, uh, they were very keen on the social aspect and economics around what this particular seminar series. And then the Global Sustainability Institute at Anglia Raskin University, which is doing also a lot of interdisciplinary research. That's where I used to work until six months ago. Uh, so we are going to talk uh, more on Gaia's uh, speech in a minute, but before going into that, what I want to do was to first of all remember everybody about what's going to come next. So again, the seminar series is interdisciplinary. So today we have uh, Gaia, which is going to talk about something uh, quite quantitative, if we can say. And uh, next week we are going to have Julia Kim, she's program director of the Gross National Happiness Center of Bhutan. And she's going to speak about the, the measurement of progress. So I'm trying to criticize the way the economic progress is measured today to build a better way to do that. Then we go back to Ugo Bardi, who's a bit more technical on the modeling side. And then we have Manfila Ranfele, who is the co-president of the Club of Rome. Then there is, again, myself, that I did a lot of work on limits abroad <coughs> from perspective of finance, trying to build a large model of, of World 3 into something more 
finance related. And then we have Yayati Ghosh, who is also one of the lead authors of the book, Earth for All, and she's going to close the seminar series. So we, it's going to be a very interesting set of speakers. So now a few minutes talking about the background of what we are talking about here. So Limits to Growth is a very famous story. 1972, a team of scientists from the MIT pushed by the Club of Rome. They came with this methodology called system dynamics, trying to model the entire planet, demonstrating how the global system will end up into some sort of catastrophe scenarios. And of course, what happened then is that they, they had a big shock around the world. They sold copies all over the places. I think this is the most sold book ever in science, arriving to 12 million copies or something like that. So uh, based on that, people don't know very often that uh, of this book instead. So Donella Meadows, that was the, one of the founding members of the team, Donella was much more the sensitive one among them. She's very, very smart. Uh, she passed away in the year 2000, sadly. One thing that happened after limits to growth was creating a shock. And of course, big institutions started like thinking about, oh my God, maybe we should change things around. So why don't we set up a, a way to, to, to understand global modeling? And so they start like putting a symposium together in a thing that today is the International Institute for Applied System Analysis. So it was created then. This book, Grow Up in the Dark, is that Donella Meadows took 10 years of, of reflection out of this symposium, where basically Limits of Growth was highly criticized by seven other modelers who came together to present their own models. If people want to understand, you know, the limitation of Limits of Growth, want to understand what went wrong, what went well. This is probably one of the best books you can find to understand modeling in practice. And this is free to use. It's basically online. You can download it if you like as well. So very much suggested to look at. Then, of course, in the 1990, Limits of Road came back. They were like, look, we didn't change what happened. We are keeping growing. So we are going to end up in collapse at some point. So they did that in 1990, in 2003. And still the world went in that direction. So that's one of the scenario of the 2003 book where they tried to basically say, you know, if you do an amazing technology scenario, we end up into anyway in a food crisis or people will not be happy anyway, okay? And then after that, when one professor from Australia called Graham Turner wrote it back into the discourses of everyone, because of course, the more we go towards that fatidic date of the 2020, 2030, 2040, when the world might collapse according to limits of growth, the more people are interested in looking at the data. And together with that came, of course, Johan Rockstrom pulling out the planetary boundaries report, demonstrating, you know, we are destroying completely. It's not just exponential growth. Is also the entire big picture. So, limits of growth was, uh, let's say, in comparison to planetary boundaries, quite rudimental. It says that the variables are very simple. You don't have biodiversity loss or things like that. You don't have sea level rise. You don't have fisheries. Planetary boundaries, of course, became as a huge uh, push in the direction of limits of growth, and that was the scientific evidence necessary. So together, these two were, were like a big inspiration to me, and they were definitely also a big inspiration to Gaia, that will speak more on this line of work. And again, uh, Gaia Arrington, as I said, she's not uh, an academic, so she, she did a lot of work in consultancy. She's currently vice president on ESG at Schneider Electric. She's also a, a member of the Club of Rome and advisor. 
So what she did was really to, to do a comparison similar to Turner, but building up on that to do something more interesting she's going to talk about now. And that's why she went into looking at the, the limits of growth in so much detail and became also an author of Earth for All. And that's why she's here today. And also very important to say, and she's going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. She, uh, she wrote a book that was published last month, October, Five Insights for Avoiding Global Collapse. Thanks again to Gaia. Please, Gaia, if you feel like joining anytime, we're waiting for you now. Oh, I think I will then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let me start by sharing my screen. Yeah, so this is this is great. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. And thank you for the introduction, Roberto. Um, because I, I did, you know, uh, Roberto mentioned briefly my journal article. One of the things that I, and I, you also stressed that I'm not an academic, and I'll tell you one thing that I don't like about academic journals is this passive tense where you can't use the I form and all those things, which creates a lot of distance, I think. And so uh, after I wrote that journal article, I was asked to write a book about it. And I was like, great, I'm going to make it way more personal and way more uh, really connecting to the reader. So, uh, you know, it's free. It's, it's open access. The, the links are, uh, are provided in the slides. So you judge for yourself. But uh, I, I'm, that might be a more accessible read. So um, I'm going to skip over this because I was already introduced. Thank you. Um, and also what I like about that introduction from Roberto is that we can go a little bit more into the details. Sometimes when I present, it's not always, uh, you know, there's only so much you can get into, especially if the audience is not that familiar uh, with system dynamics. And so I'm really looking forward to maybe giving a little bit more detail this time. Uh, because you can actually read these graphs, uh, I, I think. Uh, so these are the four scenarios from the limits to growth model. So world three uh, that I uh, used in, in my comparison. So what I did is I took four of these scenarios. I took the key variables in world three. And then I compared that to empirical data because that's the thing, right? This is This was created 50 years ago. Uh, I used the version of the last update. So in the 2000s, but it's still a couple of decades of empirical data. And uh, it was a bestseller. And at the same time, it was so heavily criticized and very uh, effectively, I would say, that uh, over, over the decades, it really had lost a lot of its influence. Uh, and you, you would think that you some of the critics would have bothered to do this empirical data check, right? If you think the model is wrong, you can prove it now. Um, and what I did was, uh, may, I, I couldn't find it except for Turner's ones, uh, but those showed, those showed a fairly close alignment. So I was like, well, let's see if that's still true today, right? The last one from him was 2014. Also, he used the earlier version of the World 3. So that's what I did. I took the business as usual, which is on the upper left, uh, business as usual too. Both of these are uh, basically, uh, they they have no additional assumptions uh, on our behavior. So it's basically historical behavior is assumed to continue. The only difference between these two is that in business as usual too, uh, it is assumed that there are twice as many natural resources as in business as usual, say one. Uh, so resources, for example, are also then fossil fuels, for example. And that's just because we 
we really don't know exactly what's in the ground. So some of the criticism was, well, you're underestimating how much oil we still have left in the ground. They were like, fine, you know what, we'll just double it. And what you see there, it's very interesting, is that um, because indeed that re that relaxes the resource constraint, right? And business as usual can continue for longer and it only makes the collapse worse, as you can see very clearly. It's the biggest, It's because it can continue for longer, but then the collapse is, is only delayed, but it's certainly not avoided, right? The cause ultimately is also changed from a resource uh, uh, scarcity towards pollution. So I would argue that's also pollution from greenhouse gases, right? So what this would be uh, is the climate change scenario. On the lower left, we have comprehensive technology. That was another criticism at the time. You underestimate how innovative people are. Um, I've always found that a very bold statement. I thought, wow, that's quite a thing to say to <laughs> MIT scientists, right? Um, innovation, have you thought about that? They did think about it. It was actually a variable uh, or a parameter, I should say, in there. Uh, but, uh, and we are very innovative, uh, but it still takes time to develop things and then to, to mature it and then to spread it. Right. So, um, but nevertheless, they took, they put that at a rate at unprecedentedly high. So higher than we've ever been able to innovate in history. And that's how they came with, up with this uh, comprehensive technology scenario. And what you see is that, yes, these very high innovation rates do avoid an outright collapse. You still see declines, um, but it's not as bad as in business as usual too, for example. And then the last one on the lower right is stabilized world. That um, absolutely assumes some behavioral changes uh, uh, from uh, our historic behavior. And that's basically the only scenario where we can stabilize our welfare levels at a relatively high level as well. But it does assume that we let go of the pursuit of growth. In all the other scenarios, we keep going for the growth pursuit and in industrial outputs in this case, which is uh, also a proxy for our material footprint, right? How much stuff we have. And instead of that, they divert those resources towards um, very deliberately towards um, pollution abatement and human services. In this case, that's healthcare and education. All right, so sneak peek. Um, on the right, you see a couple of the, the, the headlines when my research came out on the upper right. When this journal article came out, um, they basically said, we're right on track for collapse. <laughs> so um, it's a little bit more nuanced. This is my, the overall impression, I would say, from my research. So I had many more variables, right? Um, but the overall, this is the picture. Some were more, they had an even better fit. Some were more uh, away from it, but it, basically it was this and overall. So the, the dashed purple line is empirical data. So what you see is a fairly close alignment with the scenarios. And the closest was to business as usual too and comprehensive technology. It was the least closely aligned with stabilized worlds. So what does that mean? What do we make of that, right? 
Uh, and and by the way, if you if you're uh, obviously more details are are in my book. All the data sources there are in there. Um, it's all referenced. Obviously, uh, I, I use a lot from the World Bank, uh, UN entities, uh, Wackernagel's ecological footprint, of course. Um, so more details on this are, of course, in my book. Um, this is another variable I did. It's matched very closely. It's arguably the one we would be most interested in, right? Human welfare, our well-being levels. So what this suggests is that uh, we are at peak welfare right now, and we cannot improve it anymore. We have a choice whether we maintain it or whether it goes down from here. That's what World 3 indicates. And I would argue, given that it's uh, a close alignment a couple of decades into the future, we should take its, uh, the dynamics that it shows seriously. So if we do that, then we have to conclude that holding on to growth is no longer an option. It will not happen anyway. And again, we can either consciously choose to let go of it or it will halt by itself perhaps as a result from ecosystem collapse as in business as usual too but on a more positive note i would also say that we still have time for a deliberate course correction right because we're farthest away from stabilized world but as you can see we're not that far from it yet the scenarios are only starting to diverge right now which means that we have a now or never opportunity to deliberately change course. It will not happen by itself. Again, we're not uh, most closely aligned with that scenario, but we can still, we still have the power to change future data points, right? But in order for us to do that, we would have to change our, our systems at the most basic level. So the goal of our system, which is of course where we have the highest leverage that needs to change away from growth towards something more in stabilized world. And what is that? Well, what are we doing there? Remember, we're gonna uh, divert resources away from industrial outputs, and we're gonna lower very actively uh, lower our uh, our pollution levels and uh, diverted resources towards human services like education and healthcare. Basically, what that means is. This is somewhere where we say our, the goal of our society and the economy is to meet human needs within planetary boundaries. That's our new goal. So, and we'll go back to come back to that a little bit. But this is, oh, uh, by the way, this is where I typically stop. <laughs> and then I have Q&A. But because this, uh, this, is a, this is a more curious audience, I think, um, uh, I think we can go a little bit further and let me preempt that Q&A with a question that I get a lot. They say, well, this is a global model. What about distribution? That's an excellent question. Um, so people, I think many people here are, are quite familiar, familiar with system dynamics, right? You, you perhaps know the, the causal loop diagrams like this. So the thing with inequality is there is a lot of, of these interesting dynamics about it. One key dynamic of inequality is that it's self-reinforcing. So if I already have, uh, if I'm born in an affluent family, uh, I, have, I typically have, statistically speaking, I'm more likely to have a good health and access to good education. If I have that, I have a much better chance of uh, getting a higher paying job in the future. 
And that means that my children, if I choose to have those, will also be born in an affluent family, et cetera, et cetera. That's nice. Um, it's the opposite if you're born in abject poverty. It's very hard to get out of that because the system is in that sense working against you, not just through education and health, of course, but as we also, uh, as some of you uh, probably also know, uh, we know that through globalization, right, um, investment has a higher return than, uh, than your labor. So if you already have wealth, you can invest it also in higher growth economies uh, somewhere else. Um, and then you get a you get a much higher rate than your incomes in your in, in in the domestic economy will be increasing every year. So if you're already wealthy, it's easier to make money than if you're not already wealthy. So there are so many of these reinforcing feedback loops, right? Um, this is mine, so don't don't take it too seriously. I think really good causal loops. Um, I think you will agree are also always made in a group to make sure everybody's perspective is incorporated. Nevertheless, this is what I drew. Um, and you see that all these different kind of uh, reinforce, a lot of reinforcing feedback loops are working together and they're not just economic, right? It's not just health and then you have a better income. It's also social because what do we see, for example, from studies uh, in places with relatively more financial inequalities, people also become more tolerant towards social inequalities. So there's a lot of correlation between high uh, economic inequality and gender inequality and homophobia, racial inequalities, um, which of course are then also are their own self-reinforcing feedback loops. So we have um, our environment, right? It's I think it's fairly well known that a lot of the pollution seems to accumulate in places where people are poor, right? We, you don't find a lot of pollution in the affluent neighborhoods that's all conveniently concentrated somewhere else, um, away from where the money is concentrated, basically. So with that, you have these, these enormous uh, reinforcing feedback loops that basically come down to inequality breeds inequality. The good news is, is that it also works in the opposite direction. That's how it goes with systems, right? So uh, there's a lot of work about this uh, already being done because inequality has, of course, increased over the years, especially within countries. Um, and so, and it's it's starting to tear at our at our social fabric. Um, it's starting to tear at our functioning of democracy, right? Um, but it's also in the opposite direction. Uh, this is uh, one of many authors that has spent a lot of time writing about this. And he said, uh, I like this quote of him. He says, it's almost magical how in more equal countries, human beings are happier and healthier, even those at the top. This is very important. It, the, the, the higher concentrated wealth doesn't even make the top rich healthier. Typically people, rich people in Norway are way happier than rich people in Mexico. Uh, or the US for that matter. And so this is interesting, right? So we have this inequality um, that, that, that of course is nothing new. We've had inequalities throughout history, but they have, there's, there's been very, there's, there's been a lot of variation in how unequal societies were. So I dug a little bit more into that and I stumbled on the work of a systems thinker and historian, Rihanna Eisler, who lives in uh, California these days. And she 
did a lot of um, a lot of in, uh, investigation and research into this, and she discovered that basically throughout human history we've had two models of social organization, so to say, domination model and partnership model. And in the domination model, we have a strong ranking. It's very hierarchical. We have men over woman, men over men, uh, race over race, religion over religion. So it's all very classist, sexist, etc. Differences between people are equated with superiority or inferiority. And and there there are, there, there are these quite quite elaborate structures and different roles and that sort of thing. But because and this domination model always led to, uh, to, to an organization of society with a lot of inequality. Um, people don't actually like that. It is not our more natural state. Uh, the partnership that I will get to in a minute is actually more prevalent in history. Um, but uh, but so, so it's actually hard to maintain these hierarchies, which is why there's a lot of violence and other kind of uh, sticks and carrots in in these societies to keep making it work. Then the partnership model is based on egalitarian structures. There's not a lot of whole, uh, a lot of inequality. Uh, there are some hierarchies, but these are more to facilitate decision making, basically. Um, and there uh, there's still acknowledgement of differences because there are differences between people, but uh, they're not equated. They're not qualifying. Um, and and there's not a lot, uh, and so and there's there's quite a lot of acceptance to it. Um, there's a lot of acceptance to a lot of behavior, uh, for example, homosexuality, but not so much of aggression, right? And one of the key things that Eisler found was that gender equity seems to be a, a major differentiator between these two. So this is the interesting thing that I thought uh, that I took from that, which is. Um, in the domination model, because the, the gender inequality being such a key part of it, um, what was regarded as typically feminine, like caring for the environment, caring for one another, uh, was structurally neglected. And so these societies were always doomed to fail because they were unsustainable. Is any of this starting to sound familiar? <laughs> Um, and <laughs> um, nothing like that going on right now today, right? Um, but uh, so the only solution they had to that was to continuously expand their territory because they weren't sustainable. So they had very much in their society, there was this drive for growth, for expansionary growth, right? Um, so that was another reason that there was so much violence. They needed to kind of cultivate this idea of a of a warrior tribe or a warrior society because they needed that expansion to survive. The partnership model was sustainable. Um, they didn't need to grow and they typically didn't. Um, and throughout history, again, they've been in that sense more successful that they could have they could sustain for a very long time. There is one Achilles heel, as you might suspect. If you don't cultivate a, a story of who you are as a people, uh, as a warrior race, you do not divert a lot of resources towards defense or attack capabilities. So you really, everybody can be a partnership tribe and you only need one in the area to turn things ugly. So this is, um, 
a very interesting, again, this is what I took from her work. It puts our, our current addiction to growth in historical perspective. This is why we cannot come together to tackle the big things like climate change. Because it's not like we don't want to. The majority of, of the population does want more action towards climate change. Also in the US, in many countries around the world. But we can't get it done. And it's because our social fabric is spreading from these inequalities. And this, as Eisler works tells us, is linked directly to our quest for expansionary growth. And it's precisely as the Club of Rome at the time also intuited. This is why they asked the MIT scientists, can you look into how this is connected? And that's how the limits to growth, of course, came to be. Um, why am I telling you all this? Well, this is what we're talking about right now, right? This idea of who we are as a society that goes down to the deepest level of, of, of the leverage. So we typically tend to observe the events, right? But that's only gonna be reactive. We can only react to events. Um, sometimes we make models and we start, we start to see patterns. We're like, hey, can we make a model of this? Maybe we uncover structures, right? Uh, laws are forming the structures of what we do, which is a lot more effective already. But ultimately everything that we do and our systems like our economy and society are built on our mental models of what, how we think the world works. And of course our vision at the deepest level of what we think the world should be. What are our core values and who do we think, who do we want to be, right? And I think that's a very uh, pertinent question right now um, because uh, as I said, my research shows that we have a now or never moment to turn around our current trajectory. I think what we do in the next decade will determine welfare levels for the rest of this century. And we have unprecedented power. We can change global weather patterns and we can change our, our genes. And with that power comes the responsibility to really rethink who are we and who, who do we wanna be and what world do we wanna live in? Because contrary to what we've been told, and I'm quoting myself now, <laughs> pardon me from my book, uh, we do not, require more growth to reduce inequalities. We've been told this, right? That's what that's the promise of capitalism. We need more growth to reduce poverty. We're all, they just, object poverty is acceptable only because of this promise, right? No, they're just gonna, they're gonna get there. They're just not there yet. They're just temporarily embarrassed millionaires, but capitalism will float all our boats. But we haven't seen that. We've only seen, uh, in the in the West, at least, we've definitely seen poverty alleviation in Asia, in the in the more still developing uh, economies. But in the mature economies, it has done nothing for our happiness. It hasn't made made us more happy, um, and in many countries, it has made us less happy because it made us it made it it's made it harder for us to connect through all these inequalities with one another. And my findings ultimately are that this comes from our mindset. Obviously, where I was getting at is that we need to take it way down on the domination model, right? We, and we can do that. It is in our nature to work in a partnership model. And that's what we very deliberately will need to do. Um, so we still have time to turn around uh, society, but that will not go automatically. Um, if instead of growth, we focus on meeting human needs within planetary boundaries, we can still have uh, a, a planet that a planet that's thriving and where we really are happier. 
will we do that, right? That's a, it is a tall order. It, we need to redesign and rethink our entire economy. And with that society, uh, this goes to our identity. Um, that's, that's, we can do that. Human, we've, we've done that before in the past, but it's, it's, uh, it's not easy. Um, then again, if you look at current surveys, there seems to be a longing for people uh, for, uh, for real change, systemic change. You see this, and this is all, and the surveys are, are linked below, but you see this quite strongly that there's a lot of, uh, especially in the younger generation, but in general, and especially again in the rich countries, which makes sense, right? Because growth does very little for them there anymore. E even in the US, by the way, even among Republicans, they see, for example, income inequality as a major problem. They wish that uh, the wealthiest were taxed more. Um, American youth today, they are more often so positive about socialism than about capitalism. That's huge in, in, in what I would say was capitalist headquarters just a few decades ago. Um, in Japan, we see this too. Um, so people around the world, again, especially in the OECD countries, they are starting to lose faith in, in our current systems and they want deep changes. Um, and we have the solutions. For sure, we have the techniques, right? I, I, I mean, we just need to deploy them, but and we need more of them. But um, there's we have the problem is not that we don't have the technology to make the renewable energy shift. Um, again, it is in our in our uh, society and economy. So, for example, the donut economics. These are the well-being economics, post-growth economics. The European Union just start, started a, a little team that they said, can you look into this post-growth economics? What is it? How, how, what would our economy look like? And nobody has the real answers to that yet, but they're looking into it and people are offering up solutions, right? We go is a, um, is, stands for well-being governments, uh, New Zealand, Iceland, uh, Scotland, a couple of countries are in there. They're looking into this. How do we govern if we're not looking only at GDP growth? Bhutan, of course, has done this for many years, but Julia Kim is going to talk about that. There's going to be a change in organizations, right? So companies, what right now we're on the left side, right? You you take stuff, you produce, and then you discard it again. Um, we're talking now about sustainability, which is really just net zero, right? It's like, okay, so we do no harm. But really what you want to do is do what nature does, is you give back more than you take from society. So there's this concept of regeneration. Um, how do you do that, right? Um, again, um, there, there are now toolkits for business in the donut economics. So uh, this is all going on. And if you care to, you could do that too. Um, lastly, to bring it back, we have the, we had the limits to growth 50 years ago and now the Club of Rome came out with another book half a century later and they said well um okay so you did completely listen to your message right um now that we're out of time for incremental change um these are the leverage points in the system that we want to work in if we want to make this transformation as quickly as we need it to do uh, because we are running out of time so if you're if you're, uh, in, everything you do matters, sustainability to be very clear. Uh, leverage is not the same as important, um, but if you want to work in a leverage point, working in energy and regenerative agriculture, 
um, you'll you'll be busy with that for the rest of your lives, uh, and you'll feel very fulfilled, I think, because that's you're gonna you're gonna be amplifying a lot of change. What I also want to point out is that three of the five leverage points are social. So even if you're working on uh, combating climate change through renewable energy, right? That those are environmental issues. You always need to take into account that you take along your gender lens, that you that you empower the women around you all the time, that you consciously limit if you're, for example, a policymaker, say in government or, or at a company, by the way, um, that you consciously limit the income inequality. So let's say CEO to average worker uh, ratio. You can you can limit that, right? Um, if this this renewable energy shift, for example, it will not take place if the lower uh, bottom feels like because it's going to be a transformation. There's a lot of stuff going to happen. If they don't feel that the changes in there are are shared equally, if the the rich are not shouldering their share of of this this tumult that's that's going to happen they will there will be social unrest and of course we're already seeing a lot of social unrest right now um and lastly uh poverty that's that's poverty between countries mm -hmm. this climate change is a global problem if we don't consciously deliberately help the the the, the poorest countries in the world grow in a different way because they still need to grow because they're at subsistence level uh, but of course, for example, by sharing technology, so say they can do that in a low carbon way. Again, climate change happens to all of us, right? And they will grow and we cannot blame them for them. Thank you very much. Um, I, wa I wanted to leave enough time to have a Q&A. Um, these are the links that I promised. And uh, I, I, I think I gave you plenty to, to talk about and uh, uh, any questions, let me hear it. Thank you. Thank you, Gaia. Fantastic. Awesome. So people do have questions from here. One. So let's start from okay. Uh, Woody Kahn, former editor of the journal Public Mental Health and a member of the mental health group for the Faculty of Public Health. Wonderful talk. I really enjoyed it. Covered such a wide range of things. But I think you've repeated a mistake I've seen in many similar. Uh, though less ambitious talks. You're assuming that uh, societal collapse follows other crises. That's very rare in human history. And good examples would be the collapse of the Hittite civilization, what little we know about the Easter Island civilization, or my mother's observations in uh, post-Great War Germany. Uh, where the, the old Kaiser's order just collapsed in most parts of the country. I'm concerned that we won't get to the stage where we can do all the very positive things you've described. Doing there's anything that I would not also value of your, your points for making a sustainable planet, but they'd all be short-circuited if they were preceded by societal collapse. How can we ensure that people remain positive about, I think, the five main interventions you illustrated, all of which would be good. Any rational person would want these things. Possibly a few billionaires would resist uh, at an emotional 
reflective level. But we won't get to any of them if people are already losing trust in their communities, their neighbors, their own capacity. Now, I know Danny Dorling used some of his illustrations. Uh, so what do you say about ensuring that we are aware of the risk of societal collapse and prevent that social disintegration, complete loss of trust in institutions and communities so that we can get as far as any of your five areas of intervention? Thank you very much. Uh, so Gaia, in practice, collapse of the economy and the disaggregation of the society in many, many pieces. Uh, so please, anything you can- Yeah, add. no, I, I think, I, I actually think I mentioned that. So uh, I think it's, uh, that's why I address the inequalities, right? Because this is not in a global model. Uh, and of course, yes, people are angry. I live in the US, I have noticed. And uh, so tomorrow, the midterm elections, um, for example, I was talking about this with my husband, like, it's going to be bad one way or another. Um, because if, uh, if what we see, for example, is that the polls that are coming out from Republicans all say Republicans are going to win. Um, it's also there are also some people that say, well, uh, but these these polls are done not with an, a select group. Uh, they're not taking into account a lot of early mail-in votes, for example, uh, or newly registered voters, which are predominantly Democratic. Um, but so what you will see is then if Democrats turn out to be, uh, to be voted more for than these polls indicate, people are going to scream, this was a false election. So it's going to be, uh, I, I think it's going to be very interesting. Uh, I, that's uh, why also why the Club of Rome for this new model definitely included the inequality. So there are seven regions in there and there's also a social unrest variable because it's it's very true um, that this is going to precede uh, any collapse, which I want to make clear is not the end of humankind, right? So any collapse is just what a collapse means is a steep decline uh, from previous levels. Uh, nobody here is predicting the end of the world. That was also criticism. Um, so uh, I think the Club of Rome and I agree that the social collapse in that sense will precede any of the other collapses. This is simply not in the world three model. Um, that doesn't um, mean that uh, that I didn't think it, it, it doesn't belong in there. That's why I went so much into the inequalities. I also think it's very clear that the Club of Rome this time, um, as I said, three of those five leverage points are social. So that's precisely what I meant there. We will, this collapse from climate change, that uh, we will not avoid it without first addressing the social inequalities. Uh, quite simply, and it's the other way around too. I actually agree that probably we'll see the social collapse before we will see the environmental collapse. But the thing with system dynamics, what that teaches us is how these things insert are so much interlinked, right? So we we cannot address one without the other. Um, and so I, I think that's one of the key the key points also that system dynamics teaches us. I see this a lot. Uh, where people are like, it doesn't gender equality doesn't matter because, I mean, if climate change happens, nobody's going to be happy. So we need to focus everything right now just on averting climate change. And I see their point. Yet 
I think they're wrong because what we need for climate change really to avert is, is deep behavioral trends. And that's where it starts with the social aspect. Thank you, Gaia. Uh, so at this point, I think I'll pick a couple of questions from the chat. We have, I think, enough time. So let's start from the first one. That was proposed by Frederic Guerino, who works for COP15 in um, Montreal on biodiversity. So what he's saying is a question about the distribution of funds. And uh, so in practice, at the moment, a lot of developments is done through things like the World Bank, uh, trying to deal with these big global challenges. But the question is, what is your position also from the private sector on business friendly initiatives and you know things like uh, Bill Gates, the Gates Foundation, or you know, the Bezos Earth Fund, you know, things like that. What do you think the private sector can do to speed up? Mm, yeah. Well, so everybody needs to do their part, right? So obviously private sector financing is an indispensable part of the solution. Um, I think foundations are also very useful. Um, I will say, and I know this isn't, uh, I'm not saying that this is what Frederick mentioned, by the way, but this is a, a thing I've heard a lot, especially in America, and I would like to address that too. I hear a lot where people almost act as if that is uh, a foundation is basically the same as paying taxes. So, you know, a lot of corporations, uh, rich people don't pay enough taxes in America. I think, I think that's very obvious. Um, and then there's also the tax evasion, right, by corporations. But there's like, yeah, but they also give a lot more to charity than, for example, in Europe. So basically, that evens out, right? And it does not because these foundations set up by corporates will never go against the corporate interests um, of um, of the, the the ones who are funding them. This is a key difference with anything that uh, international governments will do. So. Um, I do think, I, again, I think they are a part of it, but they are not a substitute for uh, these funds, for example, also coming through the World Bank. Does Do these funds need uh, some uh, changes, some structural changes? Yes, that, that needs to happen too, but um, the fact that they're not working perfectly is, is no reason to say, well, how about we just do it through uh, the foundations of these companies, because there's a lot of money that they give away. Um, again, I'm not. I'm, I'm not saying that Frederick was. <laughs> to be clear, I'm not saying that you were saying that. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. So the next question comes from Tracy. What, what's the likelihood that the redesign of the system will occur, and uh, isn't that the, that the redesign will make things worse than what they used to be before? Yeah, so, you know, I, I address this in my book too. Um, will we? I don't know. I don't know the future. I truly don't know if we will. I do know that we can. I know we have the technology. I know we have the capabilities as human beings to make transformative changes. We've done that in history. Um, we've also seen collapses in history. So it's both possible uh, in some way. Um, a large part of the population have nothing to lose by these changes, which typically helps. But at the same time, they're also uh, uh, historically disempowered. Uh, so I, I truly don't know, but I do think that we can. I do think 
that we want to. I think the majority of people want are 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 gasping for change. Um, I also think that the COVID pandemic, to some extent, uh, showed that we can actually change because we. Um, I agree that it wasn't a transformation, but we made some big changes overnight to our lifestyles. So again, for the common good, that actually to me shows that we can change. It wasn't enough, but um, I, I think that could be interpreted in, in two ways. Um, but again, uh, I, I'm not gonna I'm, I'm not gonna say it's gonna be easy. That's uh, I mean that opportunity is gone. I think, you know, yesterday I, I happened to be in Dutch television and somebody asked me, well, I mean, isn't this what you're asking a tall order? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know. But you know what is also a tall order? Dealing, dealing with the after effects of ecosystem collapse. It's also a lot of effort. Um, and I think those are uh, very clearly the options that we have. I, uh, growing forever is, is just not an option. And I think... Uh, I wish we had more leaders that were honest about that because it's. I, I think a lot of us uh, know that we can't go on like this. I think it's very clear that it's unsustainable. And World 3 is hardly the first... Uh, at this point, my work is is really old news. I was actually quite surprised that it went viral last year because I was like, oh, we didn't we didn't notice? Because like, like uh, Roberto already pointed out we had the planetary boundaries maps that said oh we're already transgressing a lot of them we had Matisse Wackernagel's ecological footprint that says yeah we're above our footprint for the past for many many years uh, we had the IPCC report that says code red we're not going to make it this way so um, it's those I think it's very clear what our options are um, and I think we have to be honest that none of them are uh, easy. I think it's very clear that one of them is preferred. Okay, fantastic. Uh, I'll pick two questions together from the chat again, which I think relates closer to each other and a lot with what you said. So you said that growth forever cannot be done. The question is, how can international institutions or governments or political parties be persuaded to stop promoting economic growth. So that's one question. And that links to the big uh, you know, question about green growth or big growth? <laughs> big and why? So stop growth, the growth, and uh, green growth. <laughs> you know, whenever when someone gives me two or three options, I'm like, yeah, is there a fourth? Because I, I don't like, I, I, none of those. Um, so I'm um, I, I, so I'm, I'm talking about the global model, right? So on a global level, I am a growth, meaning I'm, I'm agnostic to it. I think our focus on growth is immature. I have a one-year-old; she's very focused on on growth, and that is very becoming given her age. We are supposed to be running societies; we're supposed to be adults. Uh, growth is a terribly unambitious goal. Um, so. If we are going to well-being within ecological boundaries, if we can add to human well-being through growth, I think that's fine. And again, that is that is the case in uh, new economies, for example. Um, I think in the UK, for example, or in the US, uh, there certainly needs to do needs to be done a whole lot of redistribution of resources. But we have enough stuff. 
So at that point, um, growth is clearly not contributing to our well-being anymore. In fact, it's detracting from it because growth at all costs will then go at the cost of our social and environmental needs, which we also have. And so there, uh, it's not contributing to our well-being, so it's not good. It's, it's just that simple. So in practice, that would mean that for probably a yes in the UK, uh, I will probably in policies, uh, mostly agree with the growth uh, activists or, or advisors. Um, but again, in new economies, I think it would be the opposite. And there I would probably be more than on the green growth side where we say, okay, you can grow and then let's try to do it without the large footprints that we've had in the West with that. Okay, thank you very much. Uh... So, uh, other two questions taken together about multinational corporations. So, maybe you can give us a view as you work on one of them. Uh, so, how do you think we should tackle the culture of impunity amongst multinational corporations? Okay. And uh, how do you think companies, again, multinationals, can shift from the domination model to the partnership model? Um, I think I think business leaders have to be honest that the way that the things that have worked in the past are, are not going to remain profitable in the future. Uh, and so I think some of them will not make that shift. And I don't think they will be in business in the future. Uh, you do see that corporations know are starting to feel this. So some corporations are certainly starting to make that shift of uh, what I showed earlier towards, okay, what does it mean to be a sustainable company? They're very much at the beginning still. Um, I'm not sure if it's going fast enough, but uh, ultimately that is th that is how it will happen also from the inside. For example, when I was recruited by Schneider Electric, they told me, uh, we want you to be our internal activist. And so that's, uh, and if you have a company that understands that the past is no predictor of the future in this society anymore, then uh, that's what you do. You, you listen to maybe a little bit your younger people and not that I'm young anymore, I'm 41, but uh, you know, you listen to the, to the internal activists that you have and, uh, and, and especially uh, the really, you know, the younger people, the, 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 they are, they're teaching me new things about uh, mental health and how we need to deal with that in the workplace, right? Uh, so I think, I think that is going on uh, I don't think all corporations will do it, but uh, I don't know if this person is working at a corporation, but, uh, and this sounds very cliche, but ultimately that does come from you if you work there. There's, this will come from the workers. They have the quickest access. And um, external activists are, can be very useful and they can provide a very good stick. And then that's a great opportunity for you to come in and, and talk to the, the senior leadership and say, hey, uh, you know, I think this can work too for us. Okay, very good. So let's go back to a bit more the, the social aspect about education. And, and Nick, the question is, if you're talking about education for women and other marginalized groups, do you not run the risk of further reproducing the educational model that brought us here? That is the colonial. Learning should also be made available to the current dominant groups for they need to un unlearn and relearn. 
So education for women and uh, what do you think education should be about? Mm, yes, that's well, I mean, not that this has much, much impact, but just by the way, this is why I made my book uh, freely available online. Uh, it is true that education for people in general, right? So it's true we need to do a lot of unlearning and relearning. Um, I, for example, was, was my first master's was in econometrics and I was schooled only in neoclassical economics. And then, um, you know, only years later did I find out that that was actually wasn't a very useful economic model anymore. Uh, so that's that's definitely a thing. I agree. Um, if and it's true that that does reproduce that same uh, mindset. This is that's that's also correct. Um, I I agree that a lot of the the solutions lie in in making education way more accessible to everybody. This is uh, especially true for women. Um, for example, you see that when women women have access to education, they typically tend to choose to have fewer children just out of themselves. So you can bring down uh, the, the population um, pressures there without any force because they just choose because they're like, oh, wait, I, they, they have the all of a sudden they see more options in their life. So um, it's that's that's something that's in the Earth for All book where we need to expand that. Some uh, some some colleges have been doing that. For example, the remote options offer a lot of possibility there. So that's something where new technologies, the IoT, really can help. Um, it, it, is it happening enough? No, because and and, and again, this is not just for uh, women, right? It's really also for uh, democracy. Again, if you if you see like the, the best universities. Um, well, I don't want to know. Some of the best universities are in America, um, but for the vast majority of Americans have no access to it. So the the the, the lack of knowledge that that some people have, so quite basic knowledge, um, is also something that's that's not really helping democracy. Right. So we have protests sometimes where people are like, well, I don't want these solar panels here. Nobody has proven that they do not cause cancer. And it's very hard to have a, um, a a meaningful discussion then with that person because you can't disprove that. Um, so this whole concept of falsivity, you know, uh, it, it's um, uh, so I think she's absolutely right. That is that's that is by the way is in the empowering leverage point. So we say especially indeed for women, <laughs> but in general, broader access to education is incredibly important. Okay, fantastic. Thank you, Gaia. Changing topic, we go into finance. Uh, so a question from Joya is, how should the pension funds ensure they can secure an income without growth? Uh, this is, this is um, with all due respect, this is a little bit, uh, so we've all been trained to think that we need growth, right? Um, I, it, I, I, I'm, I don't I don't really see why we need to have growth to secure a future income. We can just make sure that we set the structures up that uh, people will uh, will not have to starve at old age. The idea that we absolutely need it, growth and if we stop having growth, that that will no longer be there. Uh, I, you know, 
I, I don't think there's really much base for it. It's, it's a matter of, um, do we prioritize that or not? Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So thank you for picking this particular from this angle. I think it was very interesting. Is this in your view, uh, how much influence on earth system modeling does what we do here uh, of natural capital included ecosystem assets and services find their way on national account? You know, I think the vision that we see for uh, for for this future that we that we want to work towards. Um, is really where we find new ways to measure things, right? So if we don't have this um, myopic focus on GDP anymore, it can be in there, but what if it's more of a dashboard of different things? How do we measure well-being? How do we measure our natural capital? Uh, that should be in the national accounts, but um, we're still figuring that out, right? So I, before this, I worked at KPMG and we have a lot of uh, accountants there and auditors. And they're all changed and only the financial aspects, the way we, oh my God, the different measurements we have for the financial health of a company, staggering. And we have so little, and that, and they're all still proxies for the financial health. They're, they're, they're discrete numbers. And so they exude kind of a precision, but um, the reason we need auditors is because they don't, because they can also be very inaccurate. So, um, I think the same is true for well-being. I don't think it's harder to measure. That is something that we sometimes hear. Uh, I don't think natural capital is harder to measure. We just haven't prioritized it. So, of course, if we put that into uh, our, our national accounts, that that's I think that's where future jobs will be. Future auditors and accountants will be working on these kind of of measurements. And uh, I think it's very important that we do that. I, I was at a conference in um, in Geneva the other day. And I was joining remote, but it was in Geneva. Um, and I was very bummed to not be there because it was lovely. And there was this um, IMF director, Ralph Kami, and he said, and he was very much about uh, exact financialization of nature ecosystems so that we can value it more. And so, and he said, I get this question all the time, because I asked him this question too. I said, uh, I said, but nature's value is inherent and putting a price on it is dangerous because then when the other price gets higher, it all, it's almost like we can sacrifice that part of nature. We can't, it, it exists for its own reason. And he said, I agree. And I hear this a lot, but the thing is we say that nature is inherently valuable, but the truth is uh, that, it, and for that, it cannot have a price, but the truth is it already has a price in our current system and it's zero. That's why it's dying. And so I think these, these measurements are, uh, and taking that into um, not just yeah, in, in, in all, also from corporations, I think is, a, is uh, Despite it feeling a little bit like um, it goes against your sense of what is sacred, I think is is a, is an indispensable part of the solution. Okay, thank you very much, Gaia. Uh, now, a couple of questions from the from the floor, please. Okay, thank you. This is um, fascinating. Um, I have many questions I could ask, but I'll I'll focus on one about. Um, Can you introduce yourself? Sorry, I'm uh, Rory Wilson. I, I work at CCI for um, Bank Mondo. Um, I have a question about corporate governance, which is um, given you, you have a lot of private sector experience. Um, but 
I mean, as I understand, if, if, if Schneider were to make a very sensible decision and make you CEO, then you would have a duty uh, to your shareholders to maximize a financial return to them. And in that position, I mean, my understanding of this is, is limited, but as I understand, you would be required to act in their best financial interest. And if you were to knowingly make a decision that might be the more sustainable or more environmental decision, knowing that it would materially reduce the financial return to shareholders, you, you, you would be breaking your duty, which is a legal duty to them. And for, for me, that's, that seems like a, a big structural problem in how corporate governance works, that even if the person in the CEO's chair uh, understands the importance of these issues, they're, they're constrained by that framework. Uh, and do you think that that is a problem and have any suggestions as to changes to corporate governance that might address that? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to be very Dutch and direct there, and, uh, which is probably why I will never be CEO because I'm, I'm, I'm not discreet enough. Um, I, so I uh, thank you for the question. I appreciate it. I disagree. I think that fiduciary duty is simply has been used as a way to just not take responsibility for your externalities. These externalities um, will always find themselves back to your company in the long run, at which point maybe the CEO has changed, but uh, they will become financial. I do not think that there is that in the long run, uh, what you do, that, that is, if you add true value to society, that that can be bad for profits. You, what you do, and it could be in the short term profitable, but not in the long run. And I think that's more of the problem that there's this short termism. That's why, for example, some companies like Unilever that, that are really trying to become a, a sustainable company have stopped producing quarterly results. Because this is not helping anybody. Uh, you need to be able to think long term. I think if you're a good CEO, you will do that. So I don't think that uh, there's so so much of a uh, of, of a of a balance that you. I don't think there's a trade off actually. I think if you are good on the ES and G part, right? Um, in the long run, it will benefit your company. Um, and I yeah again I think I know that this argument is being made. I, I'm not sure if it's always genuine in that sense. Um, it, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's that much of a problem as it's sometimes made out to be. Thank, thank you, you for bro. saying <laughs> thank you for saying that. I, I will I will tell my boss that you said that. <laughs> uh, another question? Yeah, I might have missed this earlier on, but in, in case I haven't, I was wondering what specifically Schneider Electric have done around the biodiversity aspects of ESG. Um, I'm Ben Jobson from the IBAS Alliance. Yep, uh, biodiversity, thank you. It's, it's incredibly important. It is one of those things that is very, uh, it, I mean, we're basically living in the sixth mass extinction right now, right? So the World uh, Wildlife Forum brought out a report just, uh, I think, one or two weeks ago, maximum, that said that almost 70% of animal species are, have now died out. So, um, and the ones that are not dying out at all are also miserable, right? So in population, cows and pigs, so the animals we eat for consumption, basically, are very popular. Um, so they're very successful in numbers, but their lives are miserable. So it's um, what we're doing to biodiversity and to animals and plants is, is really um, 
is really the sin of of of, of our times, I think. Um, so, um, what is Snyder Electric doing? Uh, like any other company, company probably not enough. Uh, we were the first company to um, to map our end-to-end -end biodiversity footprint. So we 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 tried. That's that's how you start. Where are our biggest impacts? So we found that our biggest impacts are because we're not really using we're not in agriculture right if you're in agriculture it's land use uh, but in this case it was mostly through our contributions to climate change even though we're working in the energy transition our operations still also emit carbon so uh, we have a plan to bring that down of course um, uh, but again that's that's and then we have we're, we're having plans to measure the footprint again see how much better we did um, we have made a commitment to zero deforestation now, um, but there's still a lot more to be done. Uh, the key thing to be done for any other company too, by the way, is supply chains, right? So we have a have a good idea of uh, what we do, but then we have very long supply chains. So unsurprisingly, we found that our biggest biodiversity footprint is actually in our supply chains where we have less direct, well, we have no direct influence. And we, so we have less influence. We have some, but um, we still need to map that like any other company. And that's that's uh, something that's, that we're committed to doing in the future, uh, but we haven't done yet. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, please. Uh, thank you. Thank you for asking that biodiversity question. This is a very personal question, Guy. I hope that's okay. I can see that you are a leader in the prophetic sense. Not the only one in the uh, no growth movement, but very clearly articulate thinking ahead. How can you uh, guard yourself from what could be very personal and intrusive attacks by the corporations? Oh, that's uh, you know, this reminds me of something. Before I started my entire research, I talked to an MIT professor, and uh, not the one of the authors, but he knew them, and um, he had trained with them, and, uh, and and he's also very accomplished in system dynamics. And so I spoke with him, and he, uh, I asked for his advice. He was very helpful, and then he said, "So you do realize that some people will not want to hear." What you're going to find there, you might be attacked even personally. I've seen that happen to my colleagues and my friends. Are you, do you have a thick skin? And I said, no, uh, very sensitive, but I heal quickly. Uh, yeah. And that's, <laughs> uh, and that's sort of uh, how I do this. And um, if you, you said you were going to be personal. So now I'm going to be personal too. Um, I have my baby at home without any medication. And I will tell you, I will not go in details, but after that, there is nothing anyone can say to me that will frighten me. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, so we have another 10 minutes. Uh, so we have a question by Harro Kringsman. What is the very bold move that everyone can do to make a proper system change in one of the variables you're talking about? I, I will say, I think it's a good question because um, it's very interesting about system dynamics. Working with systems, right, is, is very, um, it's almost a little bit spiritual because you're doing a lot of things that, it's, first of all, it starts with realizing that you do not have control 
and you will be impacted by parts in the system that you could never influence. And um, and then you have to find out how you can influence it. If you even if you can, which you sometimes do, um, you still don't have control. So you just kind of there. There's no. There's not a lot of certainty in working in systems, um, and it's always bigger than yourself, right? And yet, at the same time, it's so deeply personal. It's that's really where it starts, and. That's, for example, uh, Chris, uh, Christiana Fugueres, who was the architect of the Paris Agreement. She said that too. She said, I had to change my, first, I had to change my own attitude before I could get everybody else to agree on that Paris Agreement. So um, I think it starts with this question. What, what can I do? Um, the unsatisfying thing is that I cannot answer that for you. I can only give you some guidance. I can tell you what helped for me. I can tell you these, these frameworks um, and maybe the leverage points, but ultimately this is really something that you, I think, have to find for yourself. Um, I will say that um, I, I think it's important that your actions align to some extent. So in that sense, it's important that how you spend your money it aligns with what you stand for, for example. Um, I will also say that um, give the, to give yourself some slack because if you operate in a system that's um, based on not pricing in harmful externalities, uh, you will there. It's impossible to have your needs met without causing harm somewhere. So, um, if you are holding on too much about being perfect, you will be completely paralyzed in ever doing something. So um, I, I think it's important that you, you know, avoid the most important companies, uh, but also at the same time, I think um, if you, for example, um, I personally don't eat beef because of its disproportionate impact, um, but, uh, you know, if you, uh, but before this, for example, I was a vegan, um, but then I read that it it might take away some nutrients from a baby. And so when I was pregnant, I started eating meat. And that's what I mean, right? You, uh, you have to be in that sense, uh, it's important. I think it's a good question to always ask yourself while at the same time, uh, be kind to yourself as well. Thank you, Gaia. So I also have a question, if I can ask that. Uh, so you, you spoke a lot about the, your two models, the domination model against the partnership model, right? That was part of your book and presentation. I think it's very, very interesting. So in the context of your presentation, you also spoke a lot about reinforcing loops, because reinforcing loops are the engine for change, right? It sounds like a small thing, but you end up in exponential growth. Maybe a partnership model can exponentially increase its magnitude to basically cover up the dominance model at some point, right? Now, the question is how do you feel you can reinforce the partnership model against the domination model? And uh, if you are uh, one supporting the partnership model against some, somebody, or a lot of people support the domination model against you, how do you deal with that? Mm. There is a question linked to this, which is about uh, should be the government taking care of this directly, or is there anything anything else 
that is available there? Any other mean to get to that type of uh, result? Yeah. So, yeah, that's my question. Thanks. Yeah. No, I, and I think that's that's a key question, right? So if it starts with our mindset, then how do we amplify the partnership model and take it down on the denomination part? Uh, and it, it's, uh, again, it does very much depend on location. So I, it's it's hard to really answer that uh, with a, without becoming a bit generic. Um, but uh, we have had these discussions because, as you know, the one of the key parts is gender equality, right? So um, I, I think that, for example, for uh, might specifically for men actually hold something. If you talk about making sustainability and making this sustainability transformation personal, then countering that sexist bias that we all have. Uh, so you don't need to feel bad about it, but it would really uh, be helpful if you are conscious of it in the way you uh, talk to women, maybe about them. Um, I think that's, that's, for example, is something that everybody can do, right? That's why I'm mentioning it. Um, we and and uh, to stay on that topic, uh, where you said government, for example, it's very interesting to see how different government policies work out. Because in some countries, they have uh, they install uh, you know gender quotas, things to empower women, and it works out very different differently in different settings. Because if a, a, enough majority and en en enough enough people in that population feel like it's important, they will accept that policy. But what you will see is if it's not broadly enough carried, then there's a feedback in domestic violence increases, etc. So it's very interesting. Uh, and that's again, that's why it's very hard to actually say, look at, uh, give a, a, a good answer to this, because it very much depends on a lot of factors in the specific setting. Okay, fantastic. So we have just the last very two minutes linked to what I said, partnership model against dominance model. He says, how are those two relating to voluntary reduction to a fee and dividend approach? Which is, I don't know if you have a take on that, Gaia. Okay, okay. Um, well, I mean, so there, there, there's more on that in the Earth for All <laughs> book, but one of the policies in there um, is actually uh, uh, a citizens citizens funds that pay out dividends over the commons. So um, I think um, if we're if we're talking about um, the social transition, right, and the making that fair, <laughs> offering some stabilization, um, what we see is that, for example, our data is actually a common good. If you think about it, it's now privately owned by tech companies, but really it should be. It's we create it, so it's our commons. So. Uh, those kind of things, natural resources, of course, as well. So uh, land, those they, they really belong to all of us. And so uh, I think one of the key solutions there is uh, do, putting those in a government uh, uh, government uh, managed uh, uh, citizens fund and distribute dividends from that uh, to the people. I'm not sure if I completely answered his question, but. It was a little bit general, but um, exactly. that's actually a useful comment. It's a yeah. very of course, complicated question, and then going back and reading Earth for all, I think is the answer. <laughs> so thank you very much, Gaia, for your talk. I think it was very impressive. Everybody loved the heck of it. Oh, I'm glad it was useful. <laughs> uh, just before we close, I just want to say next week we have Julia Kim. 
Julia King will speak about the major method progress, how Bhutan ended up doing these things in practice. So it, it is possible to do that, to get a happiness index and making that you know available for everybody so i invite everybody to come over next week and then there is more to come as well that is actually going more in the micro aspect of it so really uh thank you very much Gaia, for your support again thank you thank you yeah very good great to be here <laughs> thank you all bye thanks thanks for listening to our podcast for more information, please visit clubofrome.org.